This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. Welcome to part two of our conversation with reporter, photographer, author, nature guide, and now Indiana University adjunct professor of journalism in the media school, Steve Higgs. The first part of our chat aired last week, and you can still listen to it, as well as all past editions of Big Talk, by going to wfhb.org pulling down the program's menu and selecting Big Talk. Higgs started to become an advocate for the environment and nature more than 50 years ago when, as a student at Indiana University, he happened upon Bloomington's celebration of the very first Earth Day. That was in Dunmeadow in 1970. In Higgs' recollection, the sound of the word environment appealed to him on a deep level. After earning his master's degree, Higgs worked as a reporter for the Herald Times beginning in the middle 1980s, covering several important local environmental issues, including a proposal by the Westinghouse Company and local officials to build a PCB slash solid waste incinerator southwest of the city, and another proposal to clear cut a huge portion of the Hoosier National Forest. Higgs went on to work for the Indiana Department of Environmental Management under its then administrator, John Hamilton, now Bloomington's mayor. After that, Higgs started his own independent news outlet called the Bloomington Alternative. He's also run a guide service called Natural Bloomington Eco Tours, and he's written several books. His most successful were A Guide to Natural Areas of Southern Indiana. 119 Unique Places to Explore, and a companion volume covering Northern Indiana. Last week, we left off talking about those books and a third called Eternal Vigilance, Nine Tales of Environmental Heroism in Indiana. All three books were published by Indiana University Press. Let's pick up with his third book. This is... Big talk. And let me ask you this. What is environmental heroism? What constitutes that? What, the, what that book was, that one, I wrote that one at the very end of my tenure at, at uh, the HT. In uh -huh. fact, that book had come out, an interesting HT uh, period there. There was a group of very conservative uh, journalism students who did what journalism students do. They went out and they did investigation and to prove that the HT was just a bunch of Democrats, they went down to the, to the election office, uh, the clerk's office, and got the primary voting histories, which showed that every reporter at the HT, except for Kurt Vanderdusen and me, voted all in the Democratic, I shouldn't say everyone, but all the ones who mattered, they all yeah. voted in Democratic primaries, where I had voted in a couple of Republican primaries. Uh, but one of the things that they attacked me on was that I was friends with all these environmentalists because I'd written this book that came out in 95, or I think it was 96 is when it came out. Uh, no, it would have been 95 probably. But it was a collection of profiles of leading environmentalists in the state of Indiana between the 50s and uh, the late 90s. 
people like Herb and Charlotte Reed from the Save the Dunes Council, the people who literally saved the Indiana, uh, the Lake Michigan Lakeshore from becoming Gary and all the way to Michigan City. That right. was the plan. They saved that, and to this day, the, which is now the Indiana Dunes National Park, has the greatest biodiversity of any plot of land in, the, in North America because of Herb and Charlotte Reed. Uh, Jeff Stant, who is still very active, he was the first uh, director of the Hoosier Environmental Council. He's also the person who got me into environmentalism, organizing for the uh, Sierra Club chapter in Bloomington. And uh, when my daughters were young, it would have been 82 and 83, just before I went back to grad school. So it would have been 79 and 80, I guess. Uh, but Jeff Stan and organizing the state there in Bloomington, I featured um, John Foster, who was one of the people who fought the PCB incinerator and stopped the PCB incinerator, one of those original guys who took it on and, and built the movement. Andy Mahler, who was instrumental in saving the Hoosier National Forest from that 1985 clear-cutting plan. Bob Clowitter, uh, who saved uh, Patoka Lake from having a big end of the four winds kind of development on it. So those were several of the people. There was a woman who fought uh, landfills in West Central Indiana. Terry Moore was her name. So those were the kind of people. So I was able to tell their life stories with the stories of their victories great major uh, environmental victories in stopping the Hoosier National Forest from being clear-cut. Over half of the forest is off limits to, uh, to logging right now, when in fact they had a plan to, to clear-cut 82% of it, 81% of it over a 120-year period. Wow. Uh, stopping that incinerator, you know, they were going to put a toxic waste incinerator where the Dillman Road sewage, well, I don't have to tell you, you wrote a book, uh, a chapter and a book on it, but they were going to build that incinerator down there taking PCBs, condensing them into more toxic chemicals called dioxins and furans that would be drifting over Bloomington and the IU campus for eternity. In, a, right, in right. an experimental incinerator that nobody had ever tried before, but they were sure they could burn trash and burn PCBs by burning trash, which was preposterous. So, you know, those kind of victories, we don't get those kind of victories anymore. That was back when democracy worked. When citizens could rise up and say, no Bloomington mayor, no Indiana state government, no US EPA, you're not going to build this damned incinerator in our town. And because they were right, they stopped. You know, trying to understand that story, and as you uh, uh, mentioned, uh, I worked with Charlotte Zitlow on her memoir, Minister's Daughter, and a huge part of that was uh, her part in playing a role against that PCB incinerator. For the life of me, I thought the top of my head was going to come off trying to figure that whole thing out. And I'm willing to bet the top of your head was going to come off too <laughs> back when you were trying to cover it. Well, you know, there was a time when, when we first became, started getting more and more com computerized at the HT and we could actually see how many stories were written. We could do a search for PCBs. There was a time, and not just me, Steve Hennefeld uh, wrote there, other people right. wrote stories as well, although I was the, the main reporter. There were, in one year, we wrote 180 stories on PCBs. Wow. On average, we wrote a story every other day on PCBs. People were getting tired of the story. Readers. They were. Yeah, they even, even though this thing might have profoundly changed the nature of Bloomington the nature of the very air we were breathing. Exactly, exactly. And, and as you know from having written that chapter, I mean, Charlotte Zitlow, she was the pariah. 
Okay, I mean the state, Mayor Allison, the city administration, the Indiana Department of Environmental Management, the US EPA, they were all full speed ahead. We're gonna do this. There is absolutely nothing wrong with this. And Charlotte was able to stand up to them and say, no, you are wrong. And it worked in the end. And that's also what journalism does. You know, it wasn't like we weren't also quoting the city and all and the EPA and all those guys, but we told that full story to the point that it, it, became, it ended up to the point Whereas I told uh, one of your fellow colleagues there at WFHP a couple of days ago, you couldn't get elected surveyor in the city of Bloomington unless you were opposed to that incinerator. That's, wow. the, way this, that's the way the city, the city turned in a matter of seven years. But you know what, you know what was the final, well, we, want, I, we don't need to rehash that old story, but it was an amazing story. As I, as I told uh, Bree a couple of days ago, this is by far the biggest story, the biggest issue that I think this community ever has or ever will face. Well, what's the story you were going to tell? Why not? Well, you know, I mean, the original opposition to the PCB was a ragtag group of sort of radical lefties. But I mean, they were people that, that people really didn't take very seriously. I mean, yeah. I had politicians to me kind of snicker and mutter people's names, people who I really admired, you know, people who weren't experts, but knew what they were talking about. Right. And I mean, those people were just the kind of people that general, as a rule were simply not listened to. But when Charlotte started listening to them, okay, that legitimized them and they were right. I mean, there are people in the city of Bloomington who did and today know more about PCBs than people anyplace else on the planet. And this, uh, by the way, is when Charlotte Zitlow was a member of the Monroe County Commission. She was a Monroe County Commissioner. That's right. And the county was also a party. So she had, she had right. power because the county was also a party to this consent decree with the other four governmental agencies. So when Charlotte refused to go along with it, that's what started the ball rolling. And as I said, over the course of time, as we fully covered that at the HT, when we had real journalism and when citizens could actually prevail, we stopped that thing. Westinghouse did not build it and there's never been anything like it built in the country. And they're just now trying to get back the land upon which that Westinghouse plant over on Curry Pike, I believe, yes. uh, was sitting and it was leaching uh, PCB stuff into the soil and uh, literally even putting it into the sewers so that it went into the, to the water table eventually. Well, that, that's, how, that's how it all began, was the city discovered that Westinghouse was dumping uh, PCB oils down their drains to the Winston Thomas Sewage Treatment Plant on South Walnut Street there right by the recycling center. And I mean, Westinghouse wasn't breaking any rules. We were just learning about PCBs, which they had been dumping in the landfills and six landfills around the area and down their drains, uh, five landfills in Winston Thomas, all of which became Superfund sites. That's how the whole thing, that's how, how the whole thing was discovered. And right. as damaging as it was to everything else, the worst part of it was, was the workers at Westinghouse. Yes. They were told, oh my God, in fact, the plant manager stuck his arm in a vat full of PCBs to show the workers how safe it was. He <laughs> told them the PCBs were so safe they could eat them on their post toasties in the morning. <laughs> There's another cultural reference that only us old guys get post <laughs> But those guys ended up dying at, at enormously higher rates than normal of skin and brain cancer. And not only that, the people who washed their clothes were exposed to that stuff. Well, another great story about that, the city unwittingly, you know, this was the back of the earth time, James Alexander Tom, his, he wrote once a story in National Geographic called Self-Reliant Uplanders about the back to the earth movement here in Bloomington, 
Well, the couple that he featured a couple of years later discovered that they had been going to the city of Bloomington, getting sewage treatment sludge as organic sludge, uh, fertilizer, and put it on their gardens, only to discover that it was contaminated with PCBs. Right. Oh. So there was a lot of that, and there were also a lot of workers. The capacitors had copper inside of them. So the workers, if one was discarded, workers would take them home, crack them open, pour the PCB oil out on the ground behind their back porch or whatever to get the copper out of there to salvage it so that they could take it and sell it. So there was right. a lot, there's hundreds of little bitty sites like that around Bloomington as well. This, this, this place, while we don't have the largest Superfund site in the country, the six Superfund sites here in Bloomington represent the largest agreement with one single polluter, with Westinghouse, turned Viacom, turned CBS. But this is, this is a historic toxic waste site uh, issue here in Bloomington. They were among the first uh, Superfund sites, along with Love Canal in New York yes. uh, back then, the, the early 80s. That's right. In fact, her, um, I forget the woman's name. Do you remember the Love Canal woman's name? She actually came to IU, she, or she came to Bloomington. PCB activists brought her here to Bloomington, and I remember covering her talk in Valentine Hall. Oh, I wish I could remember her name. She was a pioneer. She was a great, great woman. I, I can't get it either. Uh, there, there's too much for us to know, Steve. Know. Our guest, Steve Higgs, uh, the environmental journalist, the photographer, the author, teaches journalism at the media school at Indiana University, has done so much. Back uh, in the year 2002, and for the next 10 years, you ran an operation called the Bloomington Alternative. And it was, I'm going to quote from the banner itself, it says, committed to progressive social change and independent journalism. Boy, doesn't that sound good. Doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> hey, here's some of the stories. I was going through the archive the other day. Okay. You did stories on child poverty. You did stories on the Green Party, homelessness, autism, the decline of print and TV news, deer culling around Bloomington, agricultural chemical use, peak oil, and even the Arab Spring. You were all over the world, for gosh sakes. <laughs> we kind of were. Yes, we were. Now, did you do that alone? Uh, no, I mean, I started it. What happened was I started it. I kind of went the opposite direction. I started it online. Then for three years, I had a paper on the street, and then we went back to online and finished. Um, I mean, I was the, always there with it. Other people who worked with me, Greg Travis, Gregory Travis, he was a columnist. He was like, I mean, he was one of the linchpins to it. People, you know, you know Greg, you know how brilliant he is, and he was a great, yes. great storyteller. People loved him. Brian Garvey, the cartoonist. Uh, Brian uh, did cartoons for me. Uh, I did a lot of freelance people around town, and I also did it with a lot of my journalism interns. Every semester, uh -huh. one of the perks of being a professor, uh, a, a lecturer, I should say, uh, is you pick your best students and say, by the way, if you'd like an internship, you can come and work with me. So uh -huh. uh, I would, every Sunday night when we edited that, that newspaper, I'd have a half a dozen journalism students on my porch and in my living room. We'd all be reading and editing and marking up copy before I sent it off to the printer when we had the print edition. So it was a combination of a whole lot of people. I mean, I don't know if you can see any more of the author list, but there was probably 100 or 200 people who contributed to it through the years. Was this the kind of thing that people would pay for somehow? 
They would have if I'd have been a better businessman, but I wasn't <laughs> a businessman. A lot of people gave me money. I mean, a lot of people contributed money when I said, hey, I need help. Uh, there were a lot of, I mean, I, it paid its own way. I never made any money off of it myself. Uh, in fact, one of my proudest moments was when Greg Travis told me he'd overheard a conversation between two of our advertisers saying, advertising in the Bloomington Alternatives makes you the right kind of business. Uh-huh. But there weren't enough of those because, you know, we really took on the powers to be. We took on the moneyed interests and, um, you know, moneyed interests are going to give money to people who are exposing them, you know. Yeah, and businesses uh, have a tendency to say, I'm getting the hell out of here <laughs> when you do that. <laughs> and I'll tell you something else, and I don't want to make this sound like me not doing it was the end, was the, the end of Bloomington because the Bloomington alternative actually represented a 40-year tradition. One of the reasons I came to Indiana University was when I was a senior, I was hanging out with a friend at some people's house who had brought up a copy of The Spectator, which was a, an alternative newspaper that started in Bloomington in 1966. As an aside, I mean, I love the politics, but I will also tell you, and I went over and looked it up to make sure I didn't dream this, they also had a picture of a naked woman walking up the steps of the union from behind in the newspaper. Oh, so the politics in that with a 20-year-old, 18-year-old guy, it's like, that's where I'm going. Right. There was this 40-year period there where we had con consistent, steady, constant alternative media. And, of course, the writer still, is still here. Are they still doing print? Is Peter still doing print? Uh, not that I have seen. I don't believe yeah. so. But I mean, I, I think the Bloomington Alternative was really the end of that alternative newspaper tradition, aside from, from uh, the writer. And I don't think it's a it's a um, uh, an exaggeration to say that the end of alternative media in Bloomington is when the growth machine took over our community and turned it into you know luxury housing. Right. Turned right. it into Little Carmel. You're talking about uh, a time that were that were the glory days of alternative newspapers, or what we used to call underground newspapers as well. Right. I mean, you think, uh, and this is going way back, you think of the Village Voice in New York. And in my hometown, there was a publication called The Seed, done by Abe Peck. And uh, th these were, I have to admit it, these were slanted publications. There's no question about that. And I don't even know, in a lot of cases, how fair they might have been. They had a point of view back then, but their, their audience was like, you know, 13 people. <laughs> right. right, exactly. It wasn't like Fox News, which has an audience in the tens of millions. Right. Well, I have a lecture on nonprofit journalism that I give where I trace back the, the history of, non, of nonprofit journalism. And Chicago was one of the, the, the very earliest in the early 1970s. I forget the name, but there was a civil rights one for sure that was one of the very first nonprofit newspapers in the United States, which in my humble opinion is the answer to our media problem. The reason, the reason newspapers are dying is because they can't make money. Okay, we'll take the profit motive out of the damn thing. There's, a, there's an entire movement that's been growing since the mid-2000s the latest in, in incarnation of nonprofit news, and it's all across the country. Memphis, Tennessee just started one a couple, three years ago called the Memphian, where they, have, they are completely nonprofit. Uh, they have, like I think, 15,000 subscribers, but they have, I think, 13 reporters on their staff because they're, they put their money into the mission and not into, into investor pockets. Wouldn't it be fabulous if some of the very talented people in this town, Bloomington, 
got together photographers, uh, uh, dogged journalists, uh, opinion writers, got together and made a nonprofit operation gathering news and telling the story about South Central Indiana and Bloomington. Maybe one day. Absolutely. In fact, I, well, I've been promoting and talking about that since 2008 when I first discovered uh, there was a Christian Science Monitor article about this, the voice of San Diego and the Moon Post in, in Minneapolis, which were the two first major city nonprofits. So I've been talking that up and promoting that for a long time. You know, at the, at the media school now, we uh, have the uh, Arnold Center for Nonprofit Journalism. So we have a center there and they're just getting up and running, but they're not focused on communities. Like one of the pioneers in this was a, guy, a former IU guy named Andy Hall, who started the, the um, oh, how can I forget, in Mad Wisconsin Watch in Madison, which is one of the premier nonprofit uh, newspapers in the country. And the way they do it is they do their investigative journalism on the entire state of, of uh, Wisconsin. And then they offer those stories to any news media outlet who wants oh. to do it because they don't have the time. And there was a time at the HT when Bob Zalsberg gave me two weeks where every morning all I did was go down to the city utilities and go over records related to expenses on the PCB incinerator. That will never happen again any place except at nonprofits like that. And that's what, that's what we're missing. We're missing that investigation. What is called investigative journalism today are just stories to me and to yeah. professional journalists, you know. Yeah, you talk to three people and you do homework. That's not investigation. You know, it sort of reminds me of my days with the Pulitzer Learner Papers uh, back in Chicago when I was still there. And every week I would have to go to the various police stations and go through the arrest reports one by one by one. And man, I'm telling you, you wouldn't believe some of the things people were arrested for. Let me just say I've never gone into the mayonnaise aisle at the Jewel, which is the, big, which is the big grocery chain in Chicago. I've never gone in there without thinking, I don't want to be here. <laughs> because there was a horrible story that came out of that. <laughs> I did the same thing with the courts. Every afternoon, I went down and went to each judge's office and went through all of their felonies and drunk driving uh, uh, cases every single day. So I know what you mean. <laughs> Do you miss doing the Bloomington alternative? Well, I, I miss not doing journalism. I mean, I miss, I, I miss not being in the know. I miss not being there in the middle of it. I really got tired of being in the public eye. And, you know, with the Bloomington alternative, I mean, it was not, it was more the kind of publication that we're talking about today that's the problem. I mean, it was not an unbiased, uh, fair and balanced publication. It, it was the world according to Higgs and Travis and, and the people that, that we published that, that wrote for me. Well, at one time, I was being stalked by the Indiana State Police. <laughs> Indiana State You're Police, kidding! The Indiana State Police didn't like what I was writing, and they were, and they, they actually knew that I was doing a consulting gig because I left my house on Thursday morning at the same time, drove downtown to Indianapolis to the Utility Regulatory Commission to pick up their week's worth of rulings, and then I would drive out to my dad's house. He was old and my mom was dead. And I'd have lunch with him and I would work on a newsletter that I was producing for a lawyer friend up in Indianapolis. The state police knew exactly when I would be crossing the county line. And four weeks and four times in a row were waiting for me when I crossed the county line and then followed me up the highway doing things like pulling in front of me and then slowing down, pulling right up next to me and backing away. Um, oh. 
they did that four weeks in a row, and I wrote an article called I May Be Paranoid, But, and I told the story of how that had happened, and that was the last time they did it. And I've driven that highway for 40 years, and it happened four times in a row, and never before and never since. That's what I love about talking with journalists. They can tell you great stories, and then they'll say, wait till I tell you this story, but I can't tell you for the record right now. And uh, <laughs> you're that kind of guy, Steve Higgs, the journalist. Well, imagine this, Mike. When I uh, basically stopped writing after I finished the Hoosier book, it's the first time in 40 years that I wasn't under a deadline of some kind. Oh, deadline. An adjustment, you know? Are you the kind of fellow who pushed the deadline? Not really. You mean always at the, at the last minute? Last minute yeah. guy. No. I mean, when I was at the newspaper, obviously, because you write 325 stories in 250 days a year, you know, you're, you are that. But no, I'm, I'm, I'm a guy who uh, I'm organized and I get things done up front. As I got older, I was able to stretch the workout to, to fit so that I wasn't chewing my fingernails down to the bone at midnight. Uh, but the thing about a deadline like that, a deadline that's really coming up hard, is boy, it clears the mind. You are ready to work. Right, exactly. And you have to, but that's also when mistakes are made, you know? And, and I'm, a, I'm a perfectionist, I mean, I know, the general manager of the HT once told me he didn't believe me when I said I never read this, my stories in the paper, but it was true because if I had one little typo that was in that story, it would just ruin it for me. Right. So I couldn't read my own copy because I didn't want to know if I made a mistake or if somebody edited a mistake into it. I just couldn't read it. You know, we've had uh, Michael Corita, the author, on yeah. our show here, and he was a newspaper guy too, as you well know, yeah. for the Herald Times. And he says... Once he's finished with a book, he can't stand the thought of even looking at it uh, because he spent so much time on it, he's sick of it. <laughs> you know, speaking of Michael, I tell this story, and I'm sure it's a fact because it was in his book, So Cold the River, but when I tell, talk to people about the West Baden Springs Dome, which I actually covered it when it was falling down, uh -huh. and, you know, so I know a lot about it. But Michael said in his book that people were skeptical that that architecture was going to work. And the guy who designed it was so sure of himself that he crawled up on top and sat in the very middle of the top of it when they took away the supports. And it's wow. So I tell that as a fact, and I assume it's correct because Michael had it in his book, you know. Money where your mouth is, that's for sure. There's no doubt about that. That's Steve right. Higgs, he's an environmental journalist. He's a photographer. He's an author. He still teaches journalism in the media school at Indiana University. He's been part of the Bloomington scene since, uh, golly, the late 70s now. Early 70s, actually. Early 70s. I moved here for, for, for good in 1973. Steve Higgs has done a lot of things. We're glad to hear all the stories, Steve. Thank you so much for being on Big Talk. Thank you so much for having me, Mike.
Oh, mercy, mercy, mercy. 